Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we are spinning the wheel of fortune with our featured storytellers, Dave Lee, Emma Ruth, and Jodine Revere. As part of our season, Be in the Game, each of their stories is inspired by the title of the classic game show, Wheel of Fortune. It's game time and it's story time. Please welcome back Dave Lee. Well, let the wheel of fortune spin. Round and round and round she goes. Where she stops, nobody knows. Of course, spinning the wheel, that's the easy part. Doesn't take any skill or require any decision making. The hard part's when it stops. What do you do then? Do I guess a letter? Which letter? Do I want to buy a vowel? Maybe I have enough information to solve, solve the puzzle right now. Should I give it a shot? Decisions, decisions. You know, when I come to those big decision points in life, I like to look to the wisdom of the elders. You know, the philosophers, the shaman, the Zen masters, the yogis. There's one particular yogi I rely on a lot. He's very wise. That would be Yogi Berra. <laughs> Y'all know Yogi Berra. It ain't over till it's over. It's like deja vu all over again. But my favorite Yogi Berraism is this one. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. And there's another one that goes, goes along with that. You gotta be careful when you don't know where you're going because otherwise you might not get there. Well, I came to a big fork in the road back in 1981. And at the time, I truly didn't know where I was going. But I must have been fairly careful because somehow I got here. You see, 1981 was when I finished college. Uh, I grew up in Illinois in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, and I went to college downstate at University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And I finished in 1981 with a degree in elementary education. I'm still asking myself why, but part of the reason is somebody convinced me I wasn't likely to get a job with an anthropology degree, which would have been my first choice. Unfortunately, by the time I finished, I pretty much decided I didn't want a job as a teacher. So once you've eliminated that, the market value of an anthropology degree versus a teaching degree, they're not that different. So there I was, college educated, unemployed, no particular marketable skills, no particular place to go, no particular sense of direction, job-wise anyway. I did have a sense of direction in another, another respect. For a long time, I wanted to move out west. I wanted to trade the cornfields and flatlands of Illinois for the mountains and the forest of the West. I didn't know where, didn't know when, didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, but that's what I wanted to do. Well, as it happened, an opportunity presented right about that time. My brother Terry, he's older than me, he had settled in Denver a few years earlier, and right around that time he was going through a divorce. 
he could use a roommate and I could use a place to go. So we talked about the possibility of me moving out there. In the meantime, I needed a few bucks to get together for whatever my next move was going to be. So I went to a temp agency. And they placed me at a job at a big corporation. And by big corporation, I mean nothing less than the world headquarters for McDonald's, then located in Oak Brook, Illinois. I was actually there for several weeks. And as I mentioned, at this time, my career path was a complete blank slate. So I was open to any possibilities. So while I was there, I was keeping an eye on their job vacancy board. Something came up that looked like I might have a shot at. Uh, it was, wasn't a great job, it was entry level. It was in their computer department, or as they called it then, Info Services. Now 1981 would have been a good time to learn about computers, although not everybody knew that then. Uh, but anyway, it looked like it had some potential. Problem being is if I took this job, then I wouldn't be moving to Denver. Hence, the fork in the road. Well, I thought, what the heck? I'll spin the wheel, see what happens. I applied for the job. If they want to interview me, fine. If they want to hire me, we'll see. If they don't want to hire me, that's even easier. I don't have to decide. I'll just go back to my Denver plan. No such luck. They offered me the job. I had to make a decision, and I had to make it pretty quick. So I decided to take the job, which meant I had to call my brother Terry and tell him I wasn't going to move to Denver. I'll never forget that conversation. He laughed at me. He called me a chicken shit. And he said something about, oh, you're going to be stuck back in Chicago forever. Oh, well, anyhow, I started the job anyway. And it wasn't a great job. In fact, it was actually kind of boring. One of the problems was it was a graveyard shift job. You see, McDonald's had just implemented this new system where, you know, pretty space age for the day, but they had just connected all the time clocks from all the restaurants around the country to the central network that would feed all the information back to corporate headquarters so they can process payroll. Pretty fancy for the time. They were pretty proud of it. And what they needed is they hired me and a couple other people to just cover the graveyard shift to man the phones in case any problems arose. And they were going to teach me how to deal with the problems, but they hadn't done that yet. Well, starting out, there wasn't much to do. There weren't many phone calls. So instead, what it was was me and a handful of other people hanging around this big, kind of fancy, but at that time of night, very empty, very lonely office. Gave me a lot of time to think. Among other things, I started thinking about, why am I doing this? Well, I had, a lot of, I had a lot of answers to that. Well, like I said before, it's going to teach me some good job skills. McDonald's, that's a good, solid company. I could have a future there. And not only that, I'm close to home, so I have all the safety net protections and all that. I'm doing this because it makes good sense. In fact, if you go back to that fork in the road, if there was a signpost, on the road, the one leading this way, it probably would have said something like, making good sense road. By contrast, the other road, the one that would lead to Denver, that might be called something like, do what you want way. Well, fortunately, 
somewhere early on in the first couple days uh, in those lonely nights in this big office building, I had a realization. I just kind of figured up to that point in my life, I always did the practical thing, the making sense thing, the thing I should be doing. But I figured I'm young, I'm unencumbered, I'm just starting out. If there's ever a time I should be doing what I want to do, this is it. And you know what? If it wasn't for that kick in the butt from my brother, I'm not sure I ever would have come to that real realization. So I changed course. I talked to the people in charge, made a grace, graceful exit from McDonald's, and soon after that I was moving to Denver, and the adventure begins. I didn't stay in Denver all that long, but I um, lived, in, lived in the West ever since then and enjoyed the adventures of the West since then. I still go back to Chicago. I still have family there. And when I do, every time I go back, I have a particular moment of zen. You see, I always end up going by the building where this McDonald's office was, and I always think about that point in time and how any number of things could have tipped the scales the other way. And it makes me happy because I'm glad I chose the path I did. I'm glad it went the way it did. That was particularly true one year when I was having a particularly difficult time on a visit back home. I think it was in 2014. I was kind of stressed out. There was some family stress going on. It was just one of those times where I was thinking, God, I'm sure glad I'm going to be back home in Idaho soon. And I thought a little further. You know, I'm glad I have a home in Idaho. I'm glad I've had an opportunity to make my home in Idaho. And I'm glad I've had all these Western adventures that I've had. In short, I'm glad I chose the right path at that fork in the road. And something occurred to me. I got to do something. And I called my brother Terry. He's still in Denver. In fact, actually, he's watching from Denver right now. But anyhow, I called him up and I said, hey, I don't know if you remember this or not, but about 33 years ago, you called me a chicken shit. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for that. To go with her to Idaho City. All right, and here to tell us about not going to Idaho City, but going to Bogus is our next featured storyteller. It's her first time on the Story Story Night stage. Please welcome Emma Ruth. It was August 2020 when I really started to become restless, and the wheels in my head were turning with ideas of what to do with my time. COVID-19 was in full swing, and the stay-at-home order in Idaho, or whatever semblance of that we had here, uh, was keeping me at home from a job that usually had me traveling to Southeast Asia once a month. Um, I work for a medical device manufacturer, and so now my schedule was completely out of whack. At first, it was great. I had always hoped for an opportunity like this. I had lived in Boise for about five years, but really never felt like I had a chance to explore and experience being in my home for an extended period of time. But be careful what you wish for, because then COVID happened and I surely had all of that. As with many who were experiencing their first global pandemic, I was swept up in that quarantine living. 
I had created, nurtured, maintained, and then eventually in a fit of rage, destroyed a sourdough starter. <laughs> I had binge watched all of Ozark. I had every day carefully checked in on my toilet paper supply. And I experienced and lived through Idaho's big earthquake of the summer, which was not much to write home about. But I think my neighbors finally were happy to have something to talk about other than the pandemic because I was walking my dog the next morning and somebody from their yard shouted out, good morning, did you have a good earthquake? <laughs> so now I was home and trying to find a way to really take advantage of being here in Boise and wanted to find a way to make the most of this time. So one thing that I really enjoy is running. And especially when I travel for work, I find that, especially for somebody with a pretty poor sense of direction, I find it's a good way to orient myself to a place. So whether it's running from my hotel door to the city center, exploring different tourist destinations, running on the beach, wherever I am, I find that I just really like to use my feet to get that sense of perspective. So I wanted to take that idea here to Boise during this pandemic. Now the pandemic was really, it has been really devastating for a lot of reasons, but I think it's fair to say that there are some silver linings and for me, this was one of them. So enter my big plan. I love Boise's trails. I truly think they uh, are a testament to what makes this such a livable place. So I decided that I wanted to challenge myself to run from my home in the Sunset neighborhood in Boise to the Bogus, Base, Bo Bogus Basin ski area. And there is a road, but um, that would be too efficient. And so I wanted to try to use the trails as much as possible to get me from point A to point B. Now, I don't, I, I run a decent amount, but I don't have a lot of fancy gear or knowledge or experience when it comes to this kind of thing. Luckily, my fiance Max is a little bit more well-versed and he helped some, suggest some things that I might bring with me, such as water, food, and hydration, a hydration uh, filtration system, a water filtration system. Okay, I thought. So we rummaged through our garage and found some of those things. And I figured I was set. My plan was to sort of leave my house and take some trails and wind up at Bogus. How hard could it really be? So the morning of my grand adventure, I was kind of stalling. Was I crazy? Was I going to make it there in one piece? Was this a little bit too ambitious? Yes is the answer, but I didn't know it at the time. So I left at around 7.30 in the morning, feeling pretty confident in myself. I left my home and went to the closest trail system, or part of the trails, which is the Harrison Hollow Reserve, made my way across multiple trails and roads, and finally ended up at Peggy's Trail. And Peggy's Trail, I was soaring down the smooth terrain. I was feeling really great. Trail running is the best. This was such a good idea, until I realized that what goes down must also go up. And that sense of soaring down the trail ended fairly quickly when the climbing really started. And I was not even 10 miles in and had like 4,000 feet of climbing left to do. And I had gone from my highest high to a, a pretty low low. 
So I reached the junction of Peggy's Trail and Sweet Connie Trail, which it's called Sweet Connie. I don't think it's very sweet. <laughs> it is completely uphill. And I reached that junction and was feeling really uh, <laughs> unsure that this was a good idea. I sat on a rock and had a sort of mini crisis and I had to make a decision. Do I stay in the game or do I keep going? I did have a, a bailout point that I had planned with Max ahead of time where I could call him and he would come pick me up. But I reminded myself that I was doing this for a reason. I was doing this in order to enjoy being in Boise, to explore on my own feet. And I kept reminding myself of a mantra that I set for myself ahead of time, which was, you chose to do this. Nobody's forcing you to, to do this run. So I sat on that rock for a long time. I ate a snack. I thought about life for a while. And then I decided to keep going. So I put one foot in front of the other and kept going up. At this point, a runner wearing really minimal gear, going really fast, soared past me. And it was really hot at this point. It was August. Uh, Boise is called the city of trees, but the trees are truly concentrated in the city. The foothills are very exposed. And so this runner zoomed past me and I think he muttered something about how hot it was and how he should have started early. And I muttered something back about, you know, how dare you make this look so easy. <laughs> so I was moving, but I had a bigger problem now. And my bigger problem was that I was severely low on water and had not passed a single drop of water the entire time. Uh, it's, again, August in Boise, it's dry as anything. So I was on high alert. All of my senses were waiting and listening and looking out for water. And Sweet Connie Trail keeps going up and wraps around the mountain and then there's this drop off down below. And luckily it was getting a bit more lush as I looked down um, and that was a good sign. And finally, finally, as I was completely out of water at this point, continued to check my phone, didn't have any service. So that bailout plan was a complete moot point anyway. So I finally heard, not the rushing stream that I had hoped for, it was more like a dainty trickle, but I was not gonna pass up this opportunity, the first water I had seen. So I climbed down the edge of the cliff. It was really muddy. There was a swarm of bees down below. But sure enough, I saw this, the world's smallest little water trickle. And I thought, all right, this is it. This is my opportunity. I will not make it if I don't filter water right now. So another thing I hadn't planned was how to get the water from the water source to my hydration pack that I was carrying. And so I thought of this idea. I had a little water bottle cap and I took capful by capful out of the little water trickle and filled my entire two liter hydration pack. <laughs> it took a very long time using that small water bottle. So then I climbed back the, on the edge of the trail, got back up there, didn't scrape my knee, didn't get stung by a bee, didn't spill any of my precious water and needed to sit there and filter it. And I won't bore you with the details, but I also had not read the instructions for filtering water ahead of time. And it's a very complicated process that um, it's not instant gratification. Uh, it takes a <laughs> while for that water to purify itself. And so I didn't have water right away, but luckily, eventually I did. So I kept moving after a very long delay. 
I kept moving and the junction of the Sweet Connie Trail and the East Side Trail, which would eventually bring me up to Bogus, was like a beacon. I felt like I was crossing a finish line when I got there, but I wasn't and I couldn't get ahead of myself. East Side at the beginning, it is fun. Fun meaning it's not completely uphill like I had been going. So I was, I was going down east side and then the climbing started again, but my mind and my body were numb at that point and so it didn't matter. I didn't know where I was going or, or what I was doing. I was just moving in some direction. So finally I let myself pull out my map and I saw that I had four miles to go until Bogus, which was the point in which I was to call Max and tell him to leave home to come pick me up. And I called him and he said, all right, I'll, I'll leave to come get you. What do you want to eat? And that was like music to my ears. He knew exactly what I, I needed to hear at the moment. And that got me through the idea that I was going to have Lulu's pizza, uh, got me through the rest of my run. So I climbed up the rest of the East Side Trail. And finally, I saw the backside of Bogus. In the summer, you can see the lifts. And there was some construction going on. And it was a really, really good feeling to see that. And I kept running and, or walking. Actually, I'm hiking at this point. But in trail running, something that I love about it is that you can hike. And it still counts as running. So <laughs> I like that part of it. So I was hiking up, finally reached the Bogus Basin Road, and there's a fraction of a mile from the end of the trailhead to Bogus itself, to the lodge. And so I just took off. I was so excited. I, I started running as if I had been running the whole time. And <laughs> I passed a biker who was coming the opposite direction. And I think I, I felt a lot better than I looked at that point, because he took one look at me and said, did you just run all the way from town? And I had tears in my eyes and I said, yes, I did. But I think he had biked past me at that point. I don't think he actually cared to listen. Um, but I had done it and I felt like I had accomplished this uh, task of finding a way to get this new vantage point of Boise from the top of Bogus. I had solved this puzzle of what to do with all of this time that I had during the pandemic. And I had the opportunity to explore my own backyard and a little bit beyond that. Jodine Revere. Hello, Jodine. Okay, wow, this is so weird seeing my face with lips that are not working in conjunction with the things I'm saying. I'm not sure where to look. Um, okay, so bear with me with this. <laughs> um, the universal rule of thumb when dealing with any sort of um, inquiry tool like uh, um, horoscopes or yogi tea bags or tarot cards is that uh, they're not divination tools, okay? They're not to like try and tell the future or change things at all. Uh, so questions like, uh, when will I die and who will I marry and the Reuben or the BLT? These are questions that you probably shouldn't be outsourcing anyway. So a more uh, indirect question to ask is, what do I need to know right now? So that seems to be the better, the better question. What do I need to know right now? So after I separated from my husband pre-divorce, um, I did what legions of women before me have done. I upped my yoga game, I saw a psychic, and I started obsessing over tarot cards. What did I need to know right now? 
And I was already a yoga teacher, so I already had that box checked. And that practice had certainly been something that had allowed me to move through the emotional difficulty of going through a divorce. And um, in some ways, I think that the yoga itself maybe kind of catapulted me out of my marriage as I began to see a very different part of myself, um, something that had more focus and more strength and more positivity that prior to having this practice, I don't really feel like I possessed particularly. So I liked feeling like this. And because of that, I taught a whole lot more. And I don't know if you know this, but it's incredibly difficult to go through a divorce um, and end a marriage, especially a good one. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I found that I was trying to make sure that I was doing the right thing. So I started looking for a lot of validation from, uh, I saw body workers, I saw energy workers, and they would tell me, like, they could see things. They were intuitive. They could see things. They could feel that I was having a very difficult, very difficult time in this. And so the overwhelming response was, you are in the middle of a huge transition and you are trying to find your own voice and trying to make your own path. Okay, that's true. But pretty much that can be said of any woman over the age of 40. That's not really a stretch to get to that sort of outcome. You are going through a huge transition. You're trying to find your path. You're trying to find your voice. Right. Of course we are. So once I passed through the gates and, and became an officially divorced woman, um, my female students started coming up to me after class and they'd had this particular look in their eye and they'd ask if maybe we could have coffee afterwards. And I knew immediately that they were thinking of either leaving a relationship or ending a marriage. And I was right every single time and I'm not even psychic, right? So it became a running joke of mine that, uh, you know, be careful because yoga will F you up. You will leave your job. You will leave a relationship. You will uh, move. You will start your own job, start your own business of some kind. And um, you'll start discovering all of these things about yourself because you'll be spending more time in the quiet on your mat with yourself. And you'll start starting to learn that maybe there's a bunch of things that you need to take care of and that maybe there are things that you need to take care of by yourself and especially if you've never been by yourself before you might have to do these things so not long after this um, a friend of mine very dear friend of mine uh, did a lifetime tarot spread for me and it was huge like huge giant spread so it was you know, wealth and health and your relationships and your past and present and future and your creativity and your strengths and your weaknesses and everything was all laid out there. And it was quite, it was quite overwhelming. I resonated a great, a great deal with that. So I started my own ritual of where I would make coffee in the morning. I would uh, light a candle. I would burn incense. I would do a card reading and then I would write in my journal. And that was how I started my mornings. It was a really peaceful, really lovely way to start to start my time. And the only question that I ever asked every time I did this was, what do I need to know right now? What do I need to be aware of right now at this particular point in my life? And I always felt like I was given some answer, some gleaning that made sense to me. Like you need to be more patient. You need to be open to other perspectives. You need to be um, aware of the fact that you have very black and white judgments around things. Um, you're in a particularly radiant and uh, magnanimous time in your life right now. You should use that to your advantage. So things like that. I found that was super helpful. 
So a year later, it's my 46th birthday, and I have recently met um, a man, a young man that I'm very intrigued with, and he and I have been spending time together, uh, which is great, but he's also getting ready to move to another city, which is makes me sad because um, I'm quite intrigued with him, and we seem to have a very dynamic connection together. But I'm also a little bit relieved at the idea of him no longer being in my life all the time means that I'm going to have little more opportunity to uh, not be so distracted by him. So I invite him to my birthday. He and eight of my very dearest friends who all share this love of the spiritual and uh, the magical and the ritual. So I'm 46. You add the four and the six together and you get 10. And 10 is the number of the Wheel of Fortune card in the Tarot deck. Um, it's a very dynamic card, and essentially what the gist of the meaning is that you can move your life in more uh, fortunate directions by being objective, by being flexible, by being open to reaching for new opportunities and ways to express your creativity, and often this is ignited by some kind of aha moment uh, where you realize that uh, it's good for you to take risks and to reach out for new opportunities. So the entire evening has this very rarefied air to it. Um, he and my friends seem to meld seamlessly together. And I kind of wonder if maybe he's a risky opportunity that maybe I'm supposed to pay attention to in my life right now. So he moves. We uh, text a little bit, email a little bit. And then I see the psychic. I swear to God, like my intention in seeing her really didn't have anything to do with him at all, honestly. And uh, I ran into someone that I know who had seen her and said that she was amazing. She was like so insightful and so intuitive. And she would give you this great, you know, um, objective overview. That's the key word, objective overview, overview to my life and where I'm standing right now. So I thought, OK, that sounds that sounds good. I can do that. And so I set up an appointment with her. We had the initial chit chat, talk about my new singleness, my world. And very casually, I say, um, I've met this man and I just wonder if he has any relevance in my world. Super unemotional, super disconnected. And her response to this is, I have never all of the history of the world seen two more people, healers more powerful than you, lovers, soulmates more star-crossed than you. You are so powerful and have amazing work to do. Like your love is destined. You know, cue organ music, right? But she actually does have sort of an uncanny insight into us and symbols and, and music and uh, images and things that have relevance for us. And so I fall really hard. I go from being um, having a bruised heart to moving forward and reclaiming my life to being completely committed to making this man see the light of how we are this entwined intergalactic love destiny thing. Right? This is kind of my life's work for a couple of years. Now, I have no interest in talking about this truly embarrassing part of my life at all. But what I am interested in is why do we as women seem to so much need validation from outside about our feelings, about our thoughts, and about our motivations? 
why was I so willing to believe some woman who was a total stranger to me, who did not know me, who did not know this man, because she said things that maybe on some subconscious level I want to hear. And I wonder if maybe it is after a lifetime as women of being gaslit from the time we're children. You're okay. You're not hurt. You don't feel that. You don't think that. That's not what you think. I don't know what you're talking about. God, can't you take a joke? I was only kidding. God, you're so sensitive. Don't you have a sense of humor about anything? That never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't believe that you would think X, Y, Z about me. This constant barrage of you don't know what you feel. You can't be trusted with what you think or what you experience. And every decision that you make is wrong. So we feel like we need to get permission from religion, from authority, from men, from experts, from expert men, from psychics, from tea bags, from cards, from elsewhere, because I couldn't possibly be trusted to make a decision that's right for me. I couldn't possibly be trusted to choose to do something because that's the thing that I choose to do. So during this time, I began to obsessively pull tarot cards, you know, asking more specific questions, disregarding readings that I didn't really like, trying to find more information like through the cryptic message of the thing of like, what, what was it that I needed to know right now? Instead of just looking at the facts and how did I actually feel when I was with this man in this relationship? Not what did I imagine that he was, you know, shyly hiding away in some mysterious inner man cave of his, but he was just too scared to share with me, which by the way, that is not even a thing. Okay. So even though he and I did have this connection, this for lack of a better word, magical connection, there was no relevance or purpose or meaning to why we were attracted to each other. He was not emotionally available. Didn't really matter why. I, that should have been plenty of information for me to have just cut ties and moved on. All the information was there and there was nothing remotely mysterious about it. So my interest in the tarot is way less romantic than it used to be. Although I still love the ritual, I do um, find merit in it. And I just don't put as much weight in the relevant what comes out of that. I'm learning to trust uh, my awareness more, to be willing to look at the actual facts that are laid out in front of me and um, realize that uh, that that is more important than grasping for some sort of message in the ether that I think is the thing that I want to hear. So I will always um, associate the Wheel of Fortune with this particular moment in my life when I was completely, utterly unable to see what was completely in front of me because I so desperately wanted someone or something else to give me a sign. But what I do know is that we can all, anytime, turn our lives in more fortunate directions by being flexible and objective and 
reaching for new opportunities and ways in which to exert our creativity. And often this is sparked by an aha moment where we are pushed to take more risks and be willing to uh, reach for new opportunities. And that is a fact. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 